Yeah, guys, that's exciting. This time of year, it just gets me pumped up, and I'm getting all nostalgic thinking back to my freshman year of college when I was on campus for that kickoff. And one of the things I thought back to from my freshman year of college was the Cubs were in the playoffs, which I know I'm supposed to be a Twins fan. I'm trying to be, but I'm a lifelong Cubs fan. And so, anyway, Cubs fans are everywhere. It's a beautiful thing. But um, the Cubs were in the playoffs in 2003, and I happened to be visiting one of my friends in October who went to the University of Tennessee, and the Cubs lost game four of the National League Division Series. I'm sorry if I'm totally losing some of you at this point. I'm not a baseball fan. Um, But we decided last minute to go to Turner Field, the Braves Stadium, and watch the Cubs play in game five of the NLDS. And so we drove our car down there, and we went to a Walmart, and we got these big oversized t-shirts, and we just decided we're going to go for this. And so we wrote Cubs in five on the t-shirts, and we got sweatpants, and we wrote Cubs in five in spray paint on the sweatpants as well. And then we got these massive blue clown wigs (laughs) and wore those as well. You can actually look up a picture of us. It's still online. I checked because MajorLeagueBaseball.com took a picture of us after the game when the Cubs did win and we were celebrating. But you'll notice there's actually a cigar in my mouth, so you'll have to ignore that. Okay? Just ignore that. That never happened. And pretend that didn't, didn't happen. But anyway, so the, we rooted obnoxiously for the Cubs the entire game, and they won. And so I just remember there's like 20,000 Cubs fans just surrounding the field, and we are just with one voice just celebrating the victory of the Cubs. And it was just this amazing sports moment in my life. And that was just before the Steve Bartman series where the Cubs lost, and it was totally heartbreaking. But for that moment, we were celebrating the Cubs' victory. Don't we all love to celebrate? You can think back to all these different moments in your life. Maybe it's a relationship that you were in, or maybe it was a job that you landed or it was a grade that you got. But without exception, all of us love to celebrate when things are going well. It's our natural human inclination to rejoice and to praise, to celebrate, even to worship when things are going well. But what makes Christianity unique is that the basis on which we celebrate allows us to worship, and to rejoice when all hell is breaking loose. When things go poorly, we can celebrate. And that's because we celebrate because God's greatness transcends our circumstances. The basis on which we celebrate is not our circumstances. It's God's character And because God's character is always the same, we always have a reason to celebrate. And so when we say that one of our core values at Salt City Church is celebrate, it means that we worship a God who never changes. So every week we come here, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what tragedy we've experienced, no matter what trial we're going through, no matter if things are going great or if things are going to terrible. We have something to celebrate. And that's what Psalm 145 is all about. 
And so we're going to look at three different reasons in God's character that we have to celebrate. God's unsearchable greatness, God's abounding love, and God's perfect righteousness. God's unsearchable greatness. Psalm 145, verses 3 through 5 say this. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. First thing we need to recognize about Psalm 145, it's a song. It's a song written by one of the greatest songwriters of all time, a man who was the king of Israel named David. And this is one of the last songs that David penned. And what you have to know about David is that David was a man who had great victories in his life, but also a man who went through great trouble and great sorrow as a result of his own sin, but also the jealousy and the sin of others. And so in this psalm, he gives us the secret to a celebrating life. And he says, this has been the meditation of my heart all the days of my life. Great is the Lord. His greatness is unsearchable. So greatness is sort of a or category for all of the attributes of God. It's saying that God is in a category all by himself. So his love is great love. His power is great power. His mercy is great mercy. His kindness is great kindness. His intimacy is great intimacy. And David says, when I look at his greatness, it goes infinitely in every direction. It is beyond imagination how great God is. You can come to the end of human greatness. We can see a great basketball player or a great author or a great actor. We can say that performance was great. But at some point, that person will disappoint us because their greatness ends. God's greatness is not like that. It's unsearchable. Maybe one of the most amazing aspects of God's greatness that's implicit in this text is David has said, great is the Lord. And you'll notice in your English Bible that that word Lord is capitalized. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D which signifies that that word Lord is referring 
to God's name, Yahweh, which he revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. And what he literally said in Exodus chapter 3 is he said, I am who I am. This is my name. What he's literally saying is, I am the existing one. God is an objective fact. Everything else is derivative. God is the uncreated creator of the ends of the earth. But one day, if you have kids, they'll ask you, who made God? And you'll say to your kids, no one made God. God just is. Theologians call this the aseity of God. It means his isness. He's just there. That is one of the most unsearchable facts in the universe. God just is. And David is saying, this has been my meditation. This has been my delight. And I think as we make the greatness of God our meditation and delight, two things will begin to happen in our heart. One is, we will see God as transcendently beautiful. It will cause us to say, wow, what an amazing God. He is in a category by himself. There is no one like him. But quickly, what will follow the transcendently beautiful is the mysteriously terrible. When you start thinking about the unsearchable greatness of God, it creates this pit in your stomach. You begin to feel small. And it actually creates something the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And David says the way that we see this, the way that we experience this, is yes, by meditating on God's word, but it's also by meditating on God's works. God's works can be divided basically into two categories in the scriptures. His works of creation, so everything that he's made, and then his works of redemption, how he has saved his people. Recently, I got to behold God's greatness in the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. I had the privilege of going to Yellowstone National Park. Anybody been there before? Amazing. I didn't even know this place existed, but there's a place called the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And there's basically a couple different observation decks that you can look at this canyon from. So I stood on that upper observation deck. Just look down. There's this beautiful waterfall. And there's these yellow rocks everywhere. And just the most vibrant greens and reds. And the, the canyon is so deep. And it's just so amazing. 
And I stood toward the edge of this observation deck. And people from all over the world literally started coming onto that observation deck. So there were people who were speaking German, and there were people from India, and there were people from all over the world literally just coming around me. And what I noticed is everyone had the same reaction. I didn't have to speak any of their languages to know that every language has a word for, whoa. (laughs) We're all just standing there going, whoa. But here's what I noticed. Different people have different thresholds, but everyone wanted to get as close as they possibly could. And so there's some people who are like stepping over the rail and like holding on this side, right? Just the crazy people. And they're like, wives or girlfriends are like, it's always guys, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. They're like, okay, I'll take the picture, but please tell me you'll climb over the other side. People die at Yellowstone every year. And, and then there's the people who stand like 10 feet back, right? And they're on the observation deck and they like walk up and they can't move. It's like paralyzed standing there looking at this canyon. And that's because God's creation tells us about God's greatness. He is beautifully transcendent and he is mysteriously terrible, frightening, That feeling that you get when you go to a beautiful place is the feeling that you'll get in the presence of God. And it will change you. It will change you forever. Because you will see him in in his majesty and all of the circumstances in your life that now look huge will begin to look small in the light of his presence. Here's something I don't want you to get confused about right now. I don't want you to think, okay, God is great. He's in a category by himself, which means, and this is kind of the human conclusion we make, there's no way I could ever know him. God is different than us. But surprisingly, he's also transcendently humble transcendently near. He's amazingly accessible. Let's look at God's abounding love. Second reason we celebrate God's abounding love. Psalm 145, verses 8 through 9. The Lord, the existing one, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. This revelation of God is repeated many times throughout the Old Testament. The first time it's mentioned is in Exodus chapter 34, just after Moses came down from Mount Sinai. God revealed himself again to Moses in that moment. And he told him that he was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So think about this. This great, existing, 
God of the universe who created everything and is in a category by himself loves you. Look in the text. It says, he's good to all. All means you. You can write your name in your Bible when it says all. The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. He sees you. He knows your problem. He knows your pain. He knows your loneliness. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he declares, I love you. The most powerful person in all the universe, the most beautiful person, the most amazing person loves you. And the love that he has for you is a steadfast love. It's an abounding, steadfast love. Whereas the people around you waver in their love. They become impatient, become angry, they're selfish. God is not like that. He is like a fountain that is overflowing with love, that never runs out. God is love. And his love is a gracious and merciful love. Gracious means God has favor on you that you don't deserve. He gives you the blessings of your life, not on the basis of your merit, but on the basis of his goodness. He has shown favor in your life because he is a God of love, not because you've deserved it. And his mercy means that he has withheld the punishment that your sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. When we sin, we deserve to die immediately. And God, in his great mercy, has not only given us what we don't deserve, he's also withheld from us what we do deserve. We are here this morning because God is a God of love. And his greatness accentuates his loving kindness. His greatness actually makes his love even more beautiful to us. There was a theologian named Jonathan Edwards who said that in God there is an admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. And what he means by that is that God's attributes make each other more beautiful. So God's greatness, the fact that he's so great and yet he would condescend so low to love us, makes his love that much more precious. Remember in one of the most desperate times of my life, I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo 
in the process of adopting my two oldest kids, Emma and Luke. And was there, and we really hit this blockade where it looked like we weren't going to be able to get them out of the country. And through some really crazy circumstances, I end up meeting a man who ran for the presidency of the Congo in the mid-90s and was actually kind of run out of the country because he actually wanted a real democratic election, and so the powers that be were trying to kill him. So here's the thing. Incredibly powerful guy. Knew a lot of people, had a lot of connections. And after just a short time, after getting to know me, he's coming to the hotel where I'm staying, and he's having conversations with me, and he's looking at me and he's saying, I'm going to help you. His greatness accentuated his love. So often I'd be laying in my hotel room just thinking, why is this guy helping me? Why is he spending time on our case? Out of all the cases of adoption that are going on right now, why has he shown interest in me? He has more important things to do. And so his kindness and his generosity was made more beautiful to me because of his power. Can you see the love of God for you? How beautiful it is that the creator of the stars knows your name. He sees you. He knows your pain. And he loves you. Okay. Let's hold on just a second. Let's not get too carried away at this point, with our own idea of what God's love is all about. Because at this point, especially that second point, basically everyone in America would agree, right? God is a God of love. Yes, that makes sense to us, Western people. God is a God of love. This next point does not make very much sense. Okay, And that, that is that we celebrate because of God's perfect righteousness. So yes, God is abounding in steadfast love. God is also perfect in righteousness. And that is actually something to celebrate. Psalm 145, 17 through 20. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Just before this passage, it says of God that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. God is a great and loving, and righteous king. Every square inch of planet Earth is his. He's the ruler. And the good news is that God is righteous, which means that in his thoughts and in his feelings, 
and in his actions, he always thinks, does, and feels what is right, what is good. He has never broken his own law. He perfectly upholds the Ten Commandments, which means he's absolutely perfect in every single way, which makes him a God of justice. In our society, one really cool thing that's happening is people are longing for justice. And people are trying to come up with all these different solutions to deal with the various injustices that are happening in our society. And what God's word tells us in this passage is that the root problem with injustice is that people are not bowed before the king of the universe. Everything else is an external remedy. People's hearts must be bowed before the king of the universe before they become righteous citizens of our country. Do you see that in the text? It said, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love them, love him, but the wicked he will destroy. God preserves those who love him, those who are bowed down before him, those who are submitted to him because they've stopped rebelling against him. But the wicked he will destroy. That's good news. You know why that's good news? Because somebody has to come back and make this broken world right again. And God is saying, that's me. I have the perfect perspective. I know everybody's motives. I know everybody's hearts. I know all the crimes that everyone has committed. And I am going to make absolutely everything right. Here's a problem for all of us. We might start thinking, good, I'm glad that God's going to get rid of all the bad people. Here's the problem. You're one of the bad people. You see, God does not judge righteousness by comparing us to other people. He judges righteousness by comparing us to himself. Which means if you are guilty of breaking one of the laws of God. Scripture says you're guilty of breaking all of it and you are worthy of the just punishment of a holy God. How could this be? How can God be both kind and exacting in his justice? It's because God is absolutely committed to protecting the people that he loves, and he loves all of us, and we're trying to destroy each other. And so he is like a good dad who is watching out for all of his kids, and he's saying, I will not let anyone hurt my kids. So he's got the same feeling that I have when I go anywhere in public with my family. Okay, you look at me, not much to look at. 
I probably couldn't beat anybody up. But I get this feeling when I'm at like the Mall of America with my whole family and trying to keep track of everybody, my head like gets on a swivel. And I'm looking around. Crazy things happen all the time, every day in this country. And so I'm like, what would I do if this happened or that happened or somebody charged at my family? What would I do? And I have this vision of like getting superhuman strength and taking on 300-pound, 6'5", really strong people. And I actually believe, as I think about it, that I could do it. And it's because my love for my kids has two sides to it. One is, I'm kind to them, I love them, and I want to protect them. The other side of it is, if you try to hurt them, I will do everything in my power to destroy you. (laughs) Right? I might be small, but I'm coming after you. God is righteous. He is kind. He loves every human being on planet Earth, and he sees that all of us are trying to destroy each other. So there's this dilemma. God is perfectly righteous. God is abounding in love. God is unsearchably great. It's like an unsolvable sum of math. How does this all work out in the end? And the answer that we will give you every week at Salt City Church is the cross. It's the cross. It's that Jesus Christ came to the earth to take on the wrath of God. God sent Jesus, not just because he loves us, but because there's a problem. We deserve to be punished. So when you look at the cross, you have to see that that's what you deserve. You deserve to die. You deserve to be punished. The eternal Son of God was punished on the cross. You deserve to be punished eternally for your sin. And what the cross means is that there is a way for God to punish you without you dying. That's Jesus dying in your place. But what the cross also shows us is that this unsearchably great God is abounding in steadfast love because the cross is the measure of God's love for you. I hate your sin so much that I have to punish it on the cross, but I love you so much that I am more than willing to do so. Some of you came to church this morning and just walking into this building, you experience guilt. Do you know why we experience guilt as human beings? Because we're guilty. There are things that no one ever saw you do that you feel guilty for. Why do you feel guilty? Because God saw you do it. And I am telling you, Your hope is not in good works. It's not in religious observance. It is in Jesus alone. And so at Salt City, we celebrate not because we're great, but because we deserve to be eternally condemned by the God of the universe. And instead, we have been 
eternally embraced through the cross. So would you come with us to the cross each Sunday and behold the greatness of our God and then celebrate with us? Let's pray. Jesus, your love and grace and justice is unsearchable to us. It's amazing to us. And it is our great privilege to celebrate. But we don't want to celebrate in a light-hearted, distant sort of way. But we want to celebrate aware that at great cost to yourself, God, you gave your one and only son for us. And we want to respond not thinking that we have a free pass to go do whatever we want, but with grateful lives of obedience. We want our lives to be a song of praise. Would you inhabit the praises of your people? Would you be here with us? Would you teach us each and every day how to celebrate such a great God? In Jesus' name. Amen.